Amen. Amen. Praise God for his steadfast love for us. Amen. We are um, first Sunday of the month. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book that could have been written yesterday. Uh, It speaks to our culture, even as it did to the culture of Solomon's time, because as we're going to see in a little bit, culture just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again, and there truly is nothing new under the sun. And so could I ask you to please stand one last time as we get right into it. This is Ecclesiastes, we're going to start at chapter 7, verse 15 through 29. This is the reading of God's inerrant and infallible word. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the man, to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? So I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, that they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for the the hidden jewels that are always in it, Lord, and uh, we pray that you would help us to understand the beauty of Jesus as we understand this text, help us to understand who we are as creatures, how you've made us to be, what our response to you should be, uh, and the beauty of the salvation that Jesus has won for our behalf, and the rejoicing that we should be rejoicing in you and in him, Lord. So please help us to understand, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me start out, start out with a quick history lesson for those of us who are doomed to repeat it. If you look at, I'm going to try and make this real simple, if you look at the broad scope of history, especially the last 400 years ago or so, our culture from about 1650 to about 1968 was, engulfed, was engaged in this pursuit to discover by our own means the divine plan and thereby become masters of the universe. 
uh, we were going to figure out all of the secrets of the universe outside of the Bible, which was the big problem. And, and so also to excel in moral virtue, we were going to achieve happiness, that we would be masters of the created order, and nothing bad would ever happen to us again. That was really what people thought, right up until about 1968. And what happened? There was an epic failure in that idea because things didn't pan out. There were big holes in science. Science led us up to the point where there was a breach in morality, where literally the understanding of once we had excised God out of culture, there was no basis for morality or for the, for the exercise of virtue, and that whole program just failed. And we shifted gears at that point. I mean, things don't really happen on a dime in history, but to make things simple, from 1968 until now, a whole different way since the scheme of things, the divine plan, as Solomon puts it, since we weren't able to find out what it was, some people said, well, it just doesn't exist, and some people said, well, if it does exist, we can't find it out. And so therefore, uh, since it's so unknowable, either way, what we need to do is create our own meaning and find happiness in our own experience. In other words, sensuality for the most part which is where we're at pretty much now. If you remember the 1960s, that phrase that said, if it feels good, do it? Everybody remember that? You guys, no. You guys are all too young, sorry. You're with me, right? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Don, you're with me. Amen. Herb, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, let's help school these kids, right? So they used to be these stickers that said, if it feels good, do it. And that was like the, the theme of the day, and that was... That was the slogan for what people have been discussing in the universities for 70 years. It finally hit the ground running in the 60s, and people bought into it. And what happened? That failed too. Why? Because that spurred on a huge consumerism as we began to consume things to find fulfillment, or as we looked to sensuality for fulfillment, or as we looked to experience for fulfillment. And those things ended up being empty, leaving us even emptier than we were to begin with, and that failed. Uh, and, I, you know, I think where we're seeing another shift now are people trying to find meaning in community and relationships and authenticity, which is just another way of saying being true to self. Uh, and the arts, there's craft everything, artists and everything. There's lots of great things, but all these things done outside of the worship for God will ultimately end in the same failure and the same emptiness. And what's blowing my mind about Ecclesiastes as we go through this, as we study this, is that Solomon is calling this out, but from 3,000 years ago. And he's not only calling it out to us, he's not only saying, hey, this was happening in our time, and as I've studied history, I see this pattern happening over and over again throughout history. He's saying, uh, he's warning us that, that this just repeats itself over and over again, that culture swings hard between these two extremes over and over of one hand trying to find security and prosperity and happiness in the world under the sun, as Solomon puts it, through a cultivation of knowledge and a cultivation of virtue to find ultimate meaning. And then that falls short and then it swings hard to the other side and people try to find security and prosperity and happiness in the world through the cultivation of personal truth and sensuality and that becomes empty and that fails and it swings back again to the other side over and over and over and over throughout history. And it's really, really sad when you think about it. And it leaves people in despair. 
And the missing part of the puzzle, why it is that neither of those things work, what Solomon is going to say or is saying in this passage is that, is that God has purposefully hidden from us much of the divine plan. There's just a lot of stuff we can't and don't know. And not only that, he has made the world crooked in a certain extent, not because he's mean, not because he wants to punish us, but because he knows that what we need more than anything else as creatures is to turn to him in dependence and in trust, which is the one thing we don't want to do. And so really that's the big unifying theme of this whole section of Ecclesiastes. What it says is this, the big idea is that since we can't know everything about the divine plan, we have to go with what we know, what God has revealed to us. In other words, we need to be dependent on God, we need to be gracious towards each other, and we need to trust that God is for us. So again, we need to be dependent on God, we need to be gracious towards each other, and we need to trust that God is for us. What does that all mean? Let's look at that one part at a time. First, Point one, we need to be dependent on God. Look at verse 15 through 17. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? When we, were in, when we were in China, we, had, um, we were in, a, in hotel rooms. They had brought in uh, Bible teachers and church leaders throughout from all over the country to come talk to us. And in my room, I decided to just let anybody ask whatever questions they wanted before I found out that one of the women in the room was a PhD in education at this high position in the University of China who interacted with Chinese philosophers all the time. And she just started like pelting me with the most difficult questions you could imagine from out of the Bible. And about three questions in, she says, how is it possible to be too righteous? <laughs> Blindsided. And I'm like, and I had never, I had never read, I hadn't read this, I'd read it through, but it didn't, you know, hadn't done the work on it, and so we worked our way through it. But hard question, how would you answer that? If someone came to you, if you just read, we're reading this on your own, and it said, do not be overly righteous, nor be too wise. Why would you want to ruin yourself? What would you say about that? Well, obviously, we can't be, it's not saying that we shouldn't strive after righteousness. What he is saying, though, is to understand what he's saying, we have to look at it in context, right? Super good example of why context is so important. He's talking about things people do under the sun to preserve life or to win favor with God or to increase their own fortunes. And just like our culture for that you know, 300-year period that I just talked about where we thought we would be able to define the divine plan and, and then we would be cultivating virtue and everything would be perfect, there are always people who believe that by being good that this will ensure a long and prosperous life from God. That by being good or by trying to be super righteous that that will somehow put God in our debt and make him give us a prosperous life. Even the law says this. And that's part of the problem. If you look at the Proverbs, Proverbs basically says this. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished, period. 
Uh, and that's the problem with Job's friends. When Job's comforters came to talk with Job, they were operating in a Proverbs-only world. Job was suffering. He must be wicked. Confess your sin, therefore God will forgive you and we can move on. What they didn't count on, though, and what, what, why this doesn't work so black and white like that is because we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world. And so Solomon says in his wisdom, he's like, yeah, I, I know the law of God says this. I know that generally that's true. But in my experience, I've seen the total opposite. I've seen the righteous die and I've seen the evil prolong their life and prosper. When I was 15, my mother died of cancer. She was a, a godly woman. And I said just that. I said, if this is what God has for his people, I am out of here. And that happens all the time. Countless stories of tragedy. People, kids lose their moms. Parents lose children. Missionaries are killed. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. And if we build a theology on that God will bless us in, and prosper us in life and wealth and relationships and happiness in this life, we will set ourselves up for a train wreck of faith. Uh, really, the point of, in the parable of the stony, of the, of the sower, the sower, the stony ground, is, that's the principle behind what he's saying. Some seed was sown on stony ground, They rose up real fast. They did not have a root in themselves. And when trial and temptation and persecution hit, they cut out. Crisis of faith. They were there to get something in this life. Jesus, you're going to fix my relationships. You're going to prosper my finances. You're going to heal my disease. And when he didn't, they're out. Crisis of faith, and they're out. And so the big idea in this, that, why it is that you can be overly righteous, what he means is this, that both being super self-righteous and also super wicked are basically two sides of the same coin. They're both super prideful. One says, I don't need the righteousness of God. The other says, I don't need the wisdom of God. I can live however I want. And so both of them ultimately say, I don't need God. I am an independent creature. I have no dependence of God. I don't need to trust him. I can do what I want. And that's why they're both destructive. And so the solution, solution Solomon says is to fear God. Another super offensive uh, biblical phrase for Western ears. What he means by that in context is to realize our dependence on God and to trust him. To realize our dependence on God and to trust him. To trust him for his righteousness given to us to trust him for his, that his wisdom is better than our wisdom. And so, so some of you might hear that and say, wait a minute. All these bad things happen to me. It's God's fault. Now you want me to trust him? And the answer to that, Tim Keller has a great answer to that, which is, If you say that, this is the answer to that. If you say that, you put yourself in a dilemma because what happens is if you say that God is big enough to ultimately be responsible for the tragedy in your life, you have to also admit that he is big enough to possess wisdom and knowledge that you do not. In other words, 
there's some humility. We first have to understand that God is the creator, that he is all-powerful, all-seeing. He sees the future we don't, and that we are creatures. We don't have the ability of these things. And so if God is responsible for our problems, enough for us to be mad at him and blame him for it, it's also possible that he has wisdom, power, knowledge that we do not. So the question then is, can we trust him? Is, can we trust that his intentions for us are good? And that is where the Christian faith says the cross. The cross tells us and lays to rest forever the question of whether or not God is good. The cross and the Christian idea of Jesus' sacrifice for us is absolutely unique in all the, all the religious ideas the world has ever come up with. Every other religious idea is this is what you must do to, to, to make it into God's favor. All the other gods of all the other religions stand aloof above us and they throw down a book of rules and say, good luck. But Christianity is absolutely unique in the fact that God incarnated among us, that he suffered with us, not just on the cross. You understand that. Jesus suffered everything that we suffer as a man. Everything that we suffer came against Jesus so that he is absolutely sympathetic with us. And then he died for our sins and made the way for us to heaven. God didn't throw down a book of rules. He created a staircase for us to walk up. And so knowing that that's true, we can never again say, is God good? Are his intentions for us good? We know that they are. And he just asked that we trust him and trust in that. But for all of us, all of us, I think, need to read this passage and just relax a bit. Because the ironic truth, and let's get real here, is that in real life, most of us are vacillating, just like culture vacillates between one thing and the other, every one of us is vacillating between doing what I want right now so I can feel good right now and then doing righteousness so that God will... Give me something. (laughs) Amen? I mean, seriously, can we get real? Back and forth, back and forth like hamster on the wheel. Ah, man, I just, this is what I need right now. And you do it, and you're like, man, that was empty and awful. I'm going to do this, and God's going to pay me off. I'm going to do my Bible study. I'm going to do my quiet time. I'm going to go to church every day, and then God is going to bless me. But that's not the Christian life. That's a hamster wheel, isn't it? What this is saying is there's a way, there's a different thing going on. We don't relate to God out of fear. We don't relate to God out of pride. We relate to God out of gratitude. We realize we are dependent creatures. We're called to trust on him. And through that, God gives us Jesus' righteousness. Bam! On us. And then we know that we belong to him. We know that we're okay. We can relax and start being obedient out of gratitude rather than trying to manipulate God into getting what we want. And so for all of us, just that alone, worth the price of admission, is tells us to relax. We are secure because of Jesus. We can rest in our dependence on him, empty ourselves in humility through sanctification over the course of our life and trust that God will fill us with his spirit and work powerfully through us. That's the Christian life. And we can rest in it. So, point one, we need to be dependent on God. 
moving to point two, we need to be gracious towards one another. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You know that many times you yourself have cursed others. There's this phenomenon that I've witnessed in counseling situations, marriage counseling, counseling between parties that are at war with one another, and it goes something like this. There'll be a party, one of the partners in marriage or a party in the dispute who has a long history uh, a known history of dishonesty, alcohol abuse, manipulation, financial irresponsibility, anger, you name it. They come into the counseling situation and they just rip the other person apart for, guess what? Dishonesty, alcohol abuse, uh, you know, financial irresponsibility, manipulation, anger, the exact same things. So almost to the point where I've been, in, you know, I've been like, is there a camera in here somewhere? Because the person is just, completely blind to the fact that they are ripping the other person apart for the very same things that they're struggling with. And I used to think that this was because like a case of we hate the things in others which we most see in ourselves, which is a true principle, but there was a real like blindness in these situations where they just didn't see it at all. And so what I think, what I think happens in those situations is that there's this weird blind spot Uh, And the reality is that we are all sinners and that we all sin against each other in pretty much the same way. It's just that we have this blind spot to it which allows us to, to maintain the moral high ground as people who would never do that so that we can then look down at the other person and say, look what they're doing. I would never do that. Therefore, I am the judge and they're bad. But that's really... That's not reality, right? Let me give you a quick paraphrase of this, this section. There's three wisdom sayings, and basically paraphrased, it says this. Verse 19, wisdom is very good. Verse 20, but it's not good enough to make you a judge because you're a sinner. Verse 20, and then verse 21, so be gracious to people who sin against you because you do the same things. Isn't that simple? Now, why is this important for us to know? How does this help? First, it helps, it helps us to be gracious to one another, right? We have developed this method of counseling that we've taken from 12-step work, actually, where when there's a dispute with partners, we believe in biblical counseling as a church. We try to counsel people from a biblical perspective rather than farming them out to secular counselors who may not share the same worldview that we do. And so in these counseling situations, we'll take someone, we'll ask them what happened, what did they do, why are you so angry at them, and then we go through a little process, and then there's a question on the other side of the page that says, when have you done this exact same thing to this person? And if you can't think of that, when have you done this exact same thing to somebody else? And it's almost like, I love that moment in the session if things are going well, because it's almost like popping a balloon with a pin. Because when we're talking about how angry they are and what the person has done to them, people are just getting puffed up and angrier and angrier and just self-righteous, and then you flip it over, and the Holy Spirit will inevitably, most of the time, slip something right under the armor, and it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh man, 
what it does, it takes out the moral high ground. It cuts the legs right out from under us. So we no longer can look down at that person for doing something that I would never, ever do. It makes us all in the same boat. And so it it helps us realize that compassion is not hierarchical. Compassion for one another is not us super righteous people being compassionate for those sinners. It's all of us sinners together being empathetic and being compassionate with one another because we're all messed up. That's the Christian life. That's another reason why we can relax and stop trying to pretend that we're holier than everybody. We can relax, trust God is working in and through us, and be compassionate with one another. The second thing is that it helps us from holding on to the poison of resentment. Because honestly, finding out that you're a sinner with everybody else is a super liberating thing. I mean, it takes a lot of work being better than everybody, doesn't it? And it takes a lot of work to hold on to the anger that we have against other people, and it also poisons, it just poisons us because we are angry all the time. So the second thing is that it frees us from the poison of resentment. And the third thing is it helps us to understand and remember how much God has forgiven us, which makes us even more grateful. It gives us a better understanding and appreciation of what Jesus has done for us. We're not real specialists in this in the American church. We don't like to talk about sin, resentment. You may even get in trouble for something like that. Uh, But the Puritans, on the other hand, our forefathers, hundreds of years ago, they would hold two things simultaneously. They would hold the grievousness of our sin, not for morbid reflection or to pelt ourselves with it, but it's just the reality. This is what we are capable of. And at the same time, they would hold up who we are in Jesus, his righteousness, his perfection, his glory that he's shared with us, that he has given to us, and that those things held together Held, for a, held a good tension in life. We didn't get too prideful. We didn't get too independent. We realize we're sinners. We know what we're capable of, but this is who we are in Jesus, and it's beautiful. And so we need to remember what we're capable of, of our sin, because it's so easy for us to forget. And if we forget how sinful we are, it's real easy to start forgetting how beautiful Jesus is towards us. So, number one, we need to be dependent on God. Number two, we need to be gracious towards each other. And number three, we need to trust that God is for us. Point three, we need to trust that God is for us. Look at verses 25 through 26. And so I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness When I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, and he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Before I address this, let me briefly talk about verse 28, because if I don't say anything about it, I'm going to have a thousand emails tomorrow morning. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Honestly, we have no idea what Solomon means by that. There's guesses. If you look at 10 commentaries, there's 12 solutions to this problem. (laughs) 
<clears throat> and sometimes this happens. This is a very difficult passage altogether. Sometimes in biblical passages, we, we make good educated guesses, but sometimes we just don't know. And this is a very minor point. It's a secondary point uh, at best. And so what we do know is the possibility. So it's possible that, that, that Solomon is a misogynist and he's basically saying, out of you know, a thousand people, I've looked at a thousand men, I found one righteous man, I looked at a thousand women, I didn't find any righteous women. That's possible. Even if it's true, so what? <laughs> so men are one one thousandth better or more virtuous than women? I don't think that's what it is, though, for a couple of reasons. First, you know, he says that there is no one who does good all the time and doesn't sin. And then and his conclusion to this is that, you know, he says, I don't know this, I don't know this, but well, this is what I do know. What I do know is that God made mankind upright, but they have all turned aside to many schemes. In other words, everybody, all have turned aside. This is the, the passage behind Romans 3.10, where Paul says, no one is good, no one is righteous, all have turned aside None seek God. There is no one righteous, not even one, which is pretty all-inclusive. So maybe it means that he was found one righteous man and not any righteous women. Maybe it means he found one wicked man and, and no r- wicked women. That's a possibility. There's also a possibility, grammatically, that instead of it being a thousand, that word thousand means a military unit. And so he's saying instead... Uh, I find only men in military units, therefore men are responsible for the destruction and pain in the universe, and women aren't resp- responsible for that. That's a slight possibility. I think the best solution, by a hair, is that this is a proverb, because he's saying, talking about things that he found that aren't true, that aren't true, and so this could be a proverb. There might be a proverb that says, out of a thousand I found one man, out of women I found none, and he says, I found that not to be true either. Why? Because I know this that God has made mankind upright, but all have turned aside. So, pick your poison on that one. What we do know is the important part of that is that he is saying that all men have devised many schemes, and that includes Mr. and Mrs. Man. And here's the big reason why I think so many people think that it must mean one righteous man and no righteous women is because they think that the woman whose heart is snares and nets and who is more bitter than death is an actual woman or referring to a type of scandalous woman, but it's not. It's a much bigger picture than that. If we look in Proverbs, Proverbs personifies wisdom and foolishness in the personification of women. There's Lady Wisdom who calls out into the streets, follow me, find wisdom, find life. It's a very positive picture of, 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 of women. It's Women are personified as wisdom. But then there's also Lady Folly, who is this competing voice in the same places. She's in front of her house, but she's also on the highest places of the town, crying out with this competing voice, no, follow foolishness. Um, Which is astonishingly like today, these competing voices crying out, both claiming to be wise and the foolishness coming from the highest places in the town, the culturally elite institutions that we're all under, astonishingly relevant for today. And Lady Folly is portrayed as an adulteress because God uses the idea of adultery 
as a mental picture of, of unfaithfulness in marriage, as a mental picture of unfaithfulness to God, unfaithfulness to his covenant, idolatry, worshiping something less than God, or putting our, putting our love that God deserves on some other item that ultimately will fail us. And so Lady Folly is pictured as an adulteress. But here's what I want, this is what I want you to focus on. Out of all that, this is what I want us to see is the description of what idolatry is or what sin is. Folly is another word in wisdom literature for disbelief, that the idea that there's no God, and idolatry. Look at the description of what idolatry is and what it does. This is what it says. It's more bitter than death. It is snares and nets. And it is like fetters, which are like handcuffs or manacles for hands and feet. Now, when our cultural elites try and sell us on all these things, all this idolatry, is that the the image that we're presented to us? I mean, sex is very much included in in this idea of idolatry, right? And it's very much pervade in our culture. It's even called sexual liberation. Isn't that amazing? But is that what the Bible says it is? It's saying, no, it's saying... It is slavery, it's fetters, it's handcuffs, it's snares, it's nets. These are all pictures of either hunters or roving bands of slave traders that are capturing people with these devices and selling them into slavery. That's what a Hebrew reading this would have thought. There's a chapter in, uh, in Tish Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, there's quote number six, I think maybe seven, chapter called Eating Leftovers. And the idea of this is she, she paints this picture of how in her college days, her and her roommate got used to making ramen noodles for lunch because it was quick and easy. They didn't want to go all the way to the, the, the pit, which was the name for their cafeteria all the way across campus. So they had a, 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 heat, a heating pad, a, a pan, and they would make ramen noodles and cook lunch every, every lunchtime. And she said at first it was kind of gross, but basically over time, the action, the meal itself formed her so that she developed an appetite for these ramen noodles, even though it was a, an empty meal. It made her feel full, it made her feel glutted, but ultimately it was malnourishing her. But the more she ate the noodles, the greater her appetite became for them. And that is a truth with all of our appetites that our decisions or our, our forays into sensuality outside of the, of the guardrails that God has put around those things for us to protect us, that those things are formative in and of themselves. They shape our desires. They shape our appetites. And before we know what's happening, we just want to eat ramen. We've lost the taste for whole food and for nutrition. But God wants us to be nourished by other things, by word, by sacrament, by prayer, by fellowship, by all of these blessings that he's given us in the word. And it becomes, it can become, where these things, this idolatry becomes a snare, a net, handcuffs, where the slave traders come and throw the nets over us and we become captive to these things against the beautiful things that God that God would have for us. And so the end result 
is that the sinner is taken away by her, the literal translation, take him captive like a prisoner of war. And so the big idea is that the whole world wants to tell us that being true to ourselves, that going with what we feel is wisdom and will give us power. But the reality is that these things are very often snares and nets that enslave us, that entangle us, and they're very hard to get out of. And so it's a trap. And it's a trap intentionally set out by the enemy of God to destroy us, to slowly empty us, to dehumanize us. But there's another option given here. And the other option is that he who pleases God escapes her. Slave traders come with the nets and this one runs away to safety. He escapes. She escapes. So who is the one who is pleasing to God? Who is pleasing to God? Well, ultimately, the question, you have to answer that question by saying only one person. At the baptism of Jesus, also at the transfiguration, God said about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's true of Jesus. But Ephesians also says about us, it says, it says blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Every time Paul says, in the beloved, in him, in Christ. It's talking about how we are being brought into union with Christ. By the Holy Spirit, we are now in a spiritual, unbreakable union with Jesus where we have all of his righteousness now. We stand before God now. He looks at you and he says, I am pleased with you. Even though you're eating ramen. Trust me. We're going to fix that. We're going to recalibrate your appetites. You're going to want whole food. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. That's the most beautiful promise in the Old Testament. And so being in the beloved, in Christ, means that we are pleasing to God now. That's us. We're the ones escaping the slave traders. We're the ones escaping the traps set up by the enemy to destroy us, to kill what God loves. And so, beloved, this is what God is telling us today in this. You're saying that the world is a minefield. It's a series of traps set up to ensnare you and take you captive as prisoners of war, but in Christ in our union with him, that we have been set free from the corruption of the world and we have escaped. The penalty of our sin has been forgiven and we are escaping. The the power of sin is being broken in us and he promises we will escape. 
that the, even the very presence of sin will be removed from us. And this is, this is what I want to get across. This is such a radical different idea of obedience than we usually think, isn't it? I think obedience is uh, it's a restriction, something God's taking away, something fun I can't do anymore, something good we can't have. But that's not it. This is telling us that this obedience is God's special care for us. He is leading us by the hand through the minefield. He is protecting us from the ensnarement of the slave traders. We are saved from the penalty of sin, but there's so much more. God is not leaving us in the, in the misery of it. He's walking us through. He's restoring us to be whole people as we learn to depend on him to be gracious towards each other and to trust that God is for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a blessed thing. It is nutrient to our souls, Lord. As much as food invigorates and strengthens our bodies, your word invigorates and strengthens our souls as the devil harasses us, as the world harasses us, as our flesh says, hey, let's go, let's go with them. You are with us, and you are protecting us, Lord. Help us to know this. Help us to see our obedience not as a restriction, but as you leading us by the hand and protecting us and bringing us into wholeness and holiness and beauty and truth, Lord, for your name's sake, not for us, for your name's sake, and we are the blessed because of it. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.